Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on April 18th, 2017. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... At the genetic level, how in the world is it possible that selecting for just behavior, this tame behavior, could lead to all of the other things that they see in these domesticated foxes? That's Lee Dugatkin. He's an evolutionary biologist and science historian at the University of Louisville. And he's the co-author of a new book titled how to tame a fox and build a dog. The other author of the book is the extraordinary Ludmilla Trout, professor of evolutionary genetics at the Institute of Cytology and Genetics in Novosibirsk, Siberia, who started running this legendary fox domestication experiment when she was 25 and is still running it at the age of 83. Trout and Dugatkin are also the authors of an article about the research in the May issue of Scientific American called How to Build a Dog. Trout does not speak much English, so I spoke with Dugatkin by phone. Tell us about this amazing experiment that's gone on for six decades. What was the impetus for it? Dmitry Belayev, who is the person who got the experiment started initially, was fascinated with the process of domestication. He had worked with um, domesticated animals um, in various different places, looking at various different questions um, early in his career. And he wanted to devise an experiment to test a uh, fairly radical notion that he had about how domestication events begin. So he wanted to do an experiment that he could look at results in real time as it's happening, you know, because we, when we think about domestication, the classic example of dogs from wolves, you know, we're looking at a process that people still argue, but we're talking about a process that, that would take thousands and perhaps, you know, uh, 10,000 to 15,000 years to complete. And what Bleleyev wanted to do was test his ideas about domestication in real time so that he could watch changes unfold um, in front of him and his team. And so he initiated this, this silver fox domestication experiment. How did Ludmilla Trut get involved in this? Well, so Bleleyev came up with this idea initially in the late 1940s, and uh, he ran some very small pilot work on it um, in the early 50s. And what happened was um, he had an opportunity to really expand and, and test his ideas in, in a major way in the late 1950s when he, Belayev, got a job as a vice director at this one of these new very large scale institutes that had been built in Siberia. So Belayev now had sort of resources and space where he could potentially take this idea that he has about um, how domestication occurred. And we, we can talk about the, the details of the hypothesis in a minute, but the but but he now had the resources to test this. So he's about to move to Siberia and he knows that in his new position as vice director at this Institute of Cytology and Genetics out in Novosibirsk, Siberia, that he's going to have a lot of other things that he has to do in addition to wanting to get the domestication experiment off the ground. And so he's looking for somebody who can be his main person on this experiment, someone who could do both the day-to-day -day work that would be necessary to lead the team that eventually would come about, and somebody that he could trust as a person who he thought was both independent and also was a good thinker. So before he left to take the job in Siberia, he was in Moscow, and he went to 
Moscow State University, which is one of the finest um, institutes in the world. And he talked to a colleague of his who was um, sort of an intellectual descendant of Pavlov. So this was someone who had worked a lot on um, animal behavior. And he told this fellow Krzyzynski that he was interested in finding the right person to, to lead this new experiment that he wanted to really get off the ground. And Krzyzynski um, spread the word that, that Belayev was interested. And one of the people who came to talk to him was Ludmila Trut. Um, and Ludmila was at the time um, just 25 years old. She was just finishing up her... Um, degree at Moscow State, had, some, had done some work on behavior. She was interested in learning more about the experiment, and she met Belayev, and everything clicked for both of them. Ludmila was fascinated with Belayev's ideas. She also immediately sensed that this was um, somebody who was not just sort of a visionary scientist, but was someone who she could work with that, that, that treated her immediately as an equal. Um, he asked her some questions. He told her he wanted to build a dog out of a fox and then laid out the experiment that he, um, he had been thinking about for a while. She was uh, enamored. Um, he liked what she told him um, about how she might try and, and, and do this. And so he offered her the position and she uh, took her family and hopped on a train and moved from Moscow to Novosibirsk, Siberia in late 1958, early 1959. And uh, she's been running the experiment every day uh, for the last 58 years. Unbelievable. Yeah. Ludmilla is an incredible person. Um, you know, as I said, she was just 25 when she started it. Um, she um, had just finished up her undergraduate work, but she was gung-ho that, that this experiment could be pathbreaking. And she wanted in and she wanted to be part of this giant new institute that Belaya was going to be vice director on. And um, and so she, she she took the chance and... and um, and she went there, and at the start, it was it was very difficult. But uh, after a few years, the experiment sort of um, there began to be a, a team of folks who worked with her, and um, and from there, it's year after year, new discoveries, um, new ideas about domestication on everything from behavior to morphology to genetics. So let's talk about the choice of the fox, because you yeah. know you know you know you're not going to try to domesticate. Uh, rattlesnakes. You're, right. you're, you're, there's a there's a specific reason why you you choose an animal that is already closely related to a domesticated animal. That's right. So you know, people might ask, well, if if Belayev was interested particularly in the domestication of dogs. I mean, he was interested in domestication in general, pigs, cows, horses, everything. But but in particular, he was fascinated by the domestication of dogs because, you know, be, because of the, the incredible bond that's developed between humans and dogs. And so he wanted to do his experiment in a way to, to, to understand that phenomenon in particular. And one might ask, well, why don't you just use wolves because that's that's what happened um, over our evolutionary history. Um, there's lots of reasons. I mean, they're, they're not easy to work with and they would be very difficult to do this kind of experiment in. But the major reason Belayev actually decided to work with foxes was because they were close enough to wolves from an evolutionary perspective, right? They're all canines. and But there's sort of a political under, undercurrent here. There's a backstory about why the foxes were chosen, which is that when the experiment was getting off the ground, in the Soviet Union, it was 
in essentially illegal to do what we might think of as sort of modern Western Mendelian genetics. And what had happened was up until the late 1920s or so, the Soviet Union was actually one of the leading places in the world where people were doing cutting edge research in genetics. But a fellow by the name of Trofim Lysenko, who was this charlatan pseudoscientist had managed to wiggle his way up in the kind of scientific hierarchy of the Soviet Union at the time. And he became Stalin's right-hand man for science. And Lysenko argued that what we would call modern Western Mendelian genetics was um, capitalist bourgeois science that, um, that was being done by saboteurs. And he convinced Stalin and, and many others high up in the ranks of the sort of Soviet science world that this should be illegal, essentially. And eventually what happened was thousands of Soviet geneticists lost their jobs. Hundreds of them were thrown in prison and a, f and a few dozen were actually murdered by Lysenko and his thugs for, for doing what we would consider modern genetics. So Lysenko basically argued that this older um, hypothesis that Lamarck had put out that basically um, had been disproven by the time that uh, Lysenko was rising in power was the correct way to think about genetics. But it was it was clearly the scientific establishment had already determined long ago that, that, that Lamarck's ideas were wrong. But Lysenko said they were right. And he convinced people that this is the sort of genetics they should do there. So, so this is the backdrop. It's basically illegal to do modern genetics in Russia when Belayev wants to start this experiment. But, of course, any experiment in domestication is an experiment in genetics. And so Belayev has to figure out a way that he can do this experiment and at the same time stay away from Lysenko's thugs. The beauty of the fox as an experimental subject here is that it's close enough to wolves that it makes sense to do as an experimental animal. But in addition, fox fur and mink fur, these were two of the only reliable sources of Western income coming into the Soviet Union at that time. I mean, economically, they're in bad straits. And, and furs, fox furs in particular, are a major source of, of uh, Western money coming in, and they need it. And so, so even though what he was going to do was, was a classic experiment in genetics, by doing it in foxes, he knew that they were less likely to get in trouble with Lysenko's um, people because they because Lysenko's people knew how much money fox furs were bringing in, and they might sort of turn their head the other way on any experiment that dealt with genetics and foxes, because Belayev would tell Belayev basically told him, you know, we're looking at physiology, we're looking at reproduction, we're looking at all the things you need to look at to to, to build. Um, foxes that have good furs, even though really what he was doing was was uh, planning out a domestication experiment. He knew if he said that, Lysenko's people would probably leave them alone. And they were more likely to be left alone also in Siberia than they would have been in, in Moscow or St. Petersburg. So that's why they ended up working with foxes, both because of the biological significance and also because of the political facts on the ground. That's fascinating stuff that, by the way, is not in the article, but is in the book that you and Ludmilla Trude have co-authored called How to Tame a Fox. That's right. So we've got a, a nice section that sort of lays out to the reader 
all of the Lysenko-related problems that are that are going on while they're first beginning the experiment. Those problems, you know, begin to dissipate, and by the um, you know by the late '60s, this is no longer an issue. But um, uh, but up through the first you know decade or uh, or so of the experiment, this was a real present danger all the time um, for them. So you know they they had to be smart about the way that they did this. And just to uh, catch up, Lamarck argued that acquired traits could be inherited, whereas Darwinian theory then showed that actually it was uh, traits that had uh, arisen naturally that were then selected for. And the, the two outcomes may look the same, but the mechanism was really Darwinian rather than Lamarckian. That, that's right. So right. So so Belayev, you know, was steeped in Darwin's works. He certainly understood how all of that worked. And and um, and Lamarck, as you described, it had posed a, a counter explanation. Was actually before Darwin's um, work. Um, that for a while was an interesting hypothesis. But this notion that what you what happens to you during your life from sort of the external conditions and, and behaviors and the way you act can somehow be passed down to your offspring had long even before Belayo's experiment been shown to be, you know, essentially incorrect. Um, but but Lysenko argued that Lamarck um, was in fact right on the mark. And part of the reason that Lysenko did that, and we get into this a little bit in the book, is that um, from a political philosophical perspective, uh, Lamarckian change fit better into the Soviet view of of the world than classic Darwinian evolution did. So Lysenko tapped into that fact in order to convince people of, of his basic of, of his pseudoscience. He knew that people would be would gravitate towards Lamarckian inheritance because it sort of lined up a little bit better with 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 Marxism. And so he used that to rise up in the power structure and basically make modern um, Darwinian Mendelian genetics illegal. This set the Soviet Union back scientifically, uh, you know, for, for decades. I mean, it had major implications in genetics and evolution, obviously, but it also had quite significant implications for the, for the medical research that was going on in the Soviet Union. You can imagine if you're not going to be allowed to use modern genetics, you're going to have problems when you study medical issues as well. Let's talk about the, the nuts and bolts of what Trout winds up working on, uh, you know, every day for the last 58 years. What do they actually do with these foxes? So initially, Belayev's hypothesis for how domestication occurred in our evolutionary history went like this. If you look at um, domesticated species, it turns out that they all share a lot of similarities in terms of the traits that they have. So, for example, if you think about um, cows and pigs and dogs and horses and those sorts of things, th those animals actually share a lot of traits that um, sometimes as a cluster we call this domestication syndrome. So, for example, they tend to have floppy ears and curly tails, and they tend to have much more juvenilized facial characteristics. So, what Belayev realized at the start, even back in the late 1940s and the early 1950s, when he's just tinkering with these ideas, is that that's, that's really sort of 
incredible that, that domesticated species would share a lot of these commonalities because we've domesticated them for such radically different things. So, you know, some of these things we've domesticated so we could sit on their back and ride on them like horses and other things we've domesticated for perhaps protection and other things we've domesticated to produce, to give us milk and meat. And yet they all share so many characteristics. And Belayev hypothesized, right, that the one thing that was true for all domestication events is that the animals had to show sort of pro-social behaviors towards humans. They had to be calm and relatively tame. Otherwise, we would not be able to get anything else that we needed out of them. So we could not domesticate them for transportation or food or defense if we did not have animals that were acting in a fairly calm way with humans. So Belayev hypothesized that tameness, that calmness in the animals was the key thing that got all domestication events going. And he further hypothesized that all of these other things that we see, the curly tails, the wagging tails, the floppy ears, the juvenile facial characteristics, the fact that domesticated animals tend to have much longer reproductive periods than their wild ancestors. All of these things, Belayev hypothesized, somehow came along for the ride in the sense that they were somehow genetically linked to tame behavior. He didn't know how, but that was his hypothesis. So select for tameness, Belayev says. And first of all, you'll get the process of domestication going. And second of all, all these other traits will also begin to appear. So what he and Ludmila did at the start from day one of the experiment is they, they devise a very, very simple behavioral set of tests that they're going to do. Basically, Ludmila is going to approach a fox, note what it does as she approaches. She's going to note what the fox does when Ludmila is standing right next to the cage. She's going to note what the fox does when she opens the door to the cage. And she's going to note what the fox does when she puts her hand in there or she puts a stick in there or she puts something in there. And each one of those times, she's going to note what the animal does. And she's going to come up with a scale for those that were the calmest towards her and up to the ones that were the most aggressive towards her. And they test hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these animals every year. And they simply determine the 10% that or so, you know, that number changes slightly over the course of a six decade experiment, but basically the top 10% of the animals in terms of who are the calmest towards humans, those are the individuals that are going to be the parents for the next generation. And then the next generation, they're going to do the same thing. Ludmila is going to note which of them is the calmest through this standardized approach that they've developed. She's going to test them once when they're very young, you know, um, sort of pup stage. And then she's going to test them again when they're adults. And strictly based on those behavioral tests, she is going to determine who are going to be the parents for the next generation. And they've been doing this every year for 58 years. And what they found even very, very early on, was that after just five or six generations of selecting for the calmest animals, they had gone from animals, you know, the first five or six years when they had done this testing, um, you know, they probably tested a few thousand animals over that, over those first five or six years. And even the ones initially that had been, that had done best on the calmness score, they weren't particularly tame. They just weren't 
as aggressive, aggressive as everybody else. So, you know, when you would look at them today, you wouldn't think of them as especially calm animals, but compared to what she started with, they were. Yet within five or six generations of, of this selecting the calmest animals, they had animals that were wagging their tails when Ludmilla would approach them, that were licking her hand when she put it into the cage. And this is strictly as a result of genetic selection. These animals are not trained to do this. They don't learn, there's no mechanism in the experiment for them to learn anything. They basic, what you're looking at is the result of genetic selection. All of a sudden, within five generations of selection, they had these animals that were extraordinarily docile towards humans. And then, Slowly but surely, so many of the other traits that we see in domesticated animals also began to appear in these tame foxes. There's now evidence that this experiment really did, in certain ways, wind up causing the same genetic changes that the transformation of wolves into dogs experienced. Right. So this is still one of the, I, I, I would say, one of the most active areas of research in the fox domestication experiment these days. So I think there's there's a couple of things going on here. They've been able to identify certain chromosomes in foxes where it looks like most of the genetic change associated with the domestication they've been doing for the last 60 years these these areas um, on one particular fox chromosome seem to be the ones where we see the most genetic change as a result of the domestication experiment. So at one level, they were sort of able to locate uh, the chromosome where most of the genetic change occurred. The really remarkable thing was that right around the same time that had happened, equivalent work had been done on dog domestication. And because dogs and foxes are evolutionarily close, you can compare the chromosomes in dogs where the evidence for genetic change as a result of domestication, where that occurred, compares to where it occurred in the foxes. And when you do that from a genetic perspective, basically you're looking at what are called homologous chromosomes. Basically, the fox equivalent of the dog chromosomes or the dog equivalent of the fox chromosomes are compared to one another. And it turns out that the same general area where there's lots of evidence for genetic change associated with the fox domestication is where they found it in the equivalent spots in the dog. So, um, of course, as they were doing this experiment, they had no idea that that would be the case. But it's remarkable that it seems to have the experiment seems to have produced results that are incredibly parallel at the genetic level to what what's happened at the dog with with dogs. You know, the micro details they're still working out. So there's one level at which we know um, what's going on. The other level is that you, you know you got to keep in mind that these domesticated foxes. Um, they look very dog-like, but they're still foxes. And at the genetic level, although they, we now have evidence of where a lot of the genetic change has occurred during domestication, it's still just 60 generations. And so genetically, they're not dramatically different from, let's say, a wild fox. Different enough that we've got a domesticated species, but not, you know, not radically different. It looks like a lot of the change that's occurred has been with respect to not so much 
the introduction of new genes or the selection of one gene variant versus another as changes in when genes turn on and when they turn off. So there's this whole, you know, large area of research on gene expression, which is basically asking, you know, genes turn on and turn off during different parts of our development. And when that happens dramatically affects what the gene does. And so what Ludmila and, um, and her team have done is work with geneticists from all over the world to look at whether or not they can detect differences in gene expression in these domesticated foxes. And it's, this is very much an ongoing uh, project, but when they compare the domesticated foxes to normal foxes and, and other lines of foxes that they've been breeding in Siberia, what they find is lots of evidence for changes in gene expression in, in the tame foxes. So there are a, a lot of genes that basically overexpress, which means they produce more of something and they do it at different times during development in the tame foxes. And there are some genes that underexpress, meaning they, that the genes don't produce as much product as, as they do in a normal fox. Exactly how that translates into what they're finding with the, you know, the domesticated foxes remains to be seen, but the action seems to be both in terms of classic genetic changes, one allele increases or decreases or is replaced by another, but also differences in when the genes turn on and when they turn off. Another related issue is sort of at the genetic level, how in the world is it possible that selecting for just behavior, this tame behavior, could lead to all of the other things that they see in these domesticated foxes. So we've already talked about they have longer reproductive periods, but they also have all these other plastic domesticated species traits. They also are chunkier than a normal fox. When you think of a normal fox, you think of these gracile legs that allow them to run around very quickly. Domesticated foxes are sort of chunkier, lower to the ground than, than regular foxes. All of these other changes have also occurred in these foxes, even though Ludmilla and her team are never choosing the animals based on whether or not they have droopy ears or pup-like faces, only selected on their behavior. So the question is, how do all these other things come along? They still don't know the answer for sure, but there's an interesting hypothesis that um, Tecumseh Fitch and um, Richard Rangham and Brian Hare and others have put out that suggests that it might be that all of these linkages are somehow associated um, with a set of cells that are really, really important early on in development. There are these cells called neural crest cells that are fundamental during very, very early development in animals. And it turns out that the way that these cells move early on in development and the speed at which they move can affect everything from behavior to morphology, including, you know, things like curly tails and floppy ears and more pup-like faces. So it might be, and this is still a working hypothesis, it might be that when they've been selecting for the tamest animals, one of the effects of that has been to change something about neurocrest cell development, either how quickly or how many cells or the way that they're moving. And that by changing that, because those cells affect all of these other traits, 
you may see changes in those other traits as well. That might be the sort of key to the genetic linkage, although it's still very much a working hypothesis. And again, those are neural crest cells? That's right, neural crest cells. Um, there's endless work that's been done on devel in developmental biology on these cells. These cells um, develop into all sorts of different cells in animals, everything from, um, from, from cells associated with morphological and anatomical traits like, you know, body shape and, and that sort of thing to, um, to behavior and the underlying hormones associated with them. Now, how did you get involved? Because you're, you have not been doing this research, but you and Ludmilla Trout have a, a deep friendship now. That's right. So I would say um, uh, about six or seven years ago, I contacted Ludmilla. We, we had been in contact before that a little bit, but about six or seven years ago, I had contacted Ludmilla and I asked, I, you know, I basically said, um, you know, we, there are no books on, on this experiment, um, and we need to have a book out there for the general public so they can know the incredible science that, that's been going on here for, for almost six decades. And they also can understand um, some of the political backdrop that we've been talking about and, and also this un understand this experiment that fundamentally helps us realize why this deep bond between us and our domesticated animals like dogs have occurred. And so I asked her if she would be interested in working together to, to write that book. And um, Ludmilla said that she would be. Um, and over those last six years, I've had the, uh, the honor and opportunity to, to visit um, with Ludmilla and the whole Fox research team and, and the amazing foxes themselves over in Siberia. I've been there a couple of times. And, and, and through um, our interactions um, and through hundreds of hours of interviews with other people who have been involved in the experiment and have now moved to, you know, all over the, the globe, we pieced together um, a way to tell the, the science the intrigue and the love stories all in one, you know, relatively concise book. And of course, your own research, which has appeared in Scientific American for a couple of decades now, is not completely unrelated to this because you've looked at behavior as oh. a uh, function of genes. Oh, no, no, right. No question about it. I mean, so, you know, my lab has been set up since day one. I mean, I, I look at I'm look, I mean, I look at the evolution of behavior in, in all sorts of contexts. And so, and that was really, you know, initially what, what, what spurred me to get in touch with Ludmilla because um, I knew of the fox domestication experiment. Anybody who's, who studies evolution and behavior has, has heard about it. And I knew little bits and pieces, but until I really work with Ludmilla, I didn't realize the depth of what they've done. So the interesting thing about this project compared to others that I've, I've been involved in is a lot of people know a little bit about it. And the thing is that, you know, 90% plus of it is only published in Russian. And, and so most people don't know all the depth that, 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 that's involved in this experiment. I mean, they've done dozens of 
of incredible uh, experiments that have lasted anywhere from a couple of years to a couple of decades. And of course, then all along the way, they've been doing the selection for tameness and this, this multi-layered set of results that, that really have fundamentally changed not just our view of domestication, but our, our views on evolution and our views on why it is that, you know, we have this deep relationship that we have with our pets. And Ludmilla and her team have, you know, reshaped the way we think about this. Um, and while it's really a truly collaborative effort, I mean, there have been probably hundreds of people over the years that have been involved in this. There's just no question that Ludmila is the force behind it. Belayev was the fellow who came up with the idea and vested her with the power to do this, this incredible experiment. But Ludmila is the force that has kept this thing going and continues to keep it going. She's a remarkable person. The Scientific American article in the May issue about this work is an original piece, not an excerpt from the book. So you can get a quick overview of the research in the article and then dive in more deeply in their book. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com. We're also now bundling our daily 60-second science podcasts into weekly editions posted on YouTube, where you can enjoy them by subscribing to the Scientific American channel. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 